Hey, grab your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to continue in our sermon series through the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans 4 starting in verse 18 uh, in just a few moments. And our goal today is to uh, really discover that we serve a big God. And He's a God that we can place our faith in. We can place our trust in Him. Uh, we can hope in Him. So I thought a pro- an appropriate way for us to begin today is with a catechism that may be familiar uh, to some of you, but I'm going to ask a question. The question will be on the screen, and then with the answer, we'll all collectively say the answer together. So you ready? Cool. Here's the question. What is the chief end of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Hey, let's pray that way as we begin, that God would help us to align our hearts with Him, that we could glorify Him with our lives, and that we would enjoy Him forever. God, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather today. I pray as we dive through this text in Romans 4, that you'll open our hearts to yours. God, that you'll help us to bring glory to you in the way that we listen, God, in the way that we walk out of this place in a few moments. God, may we live in a manner that exalts you. God, may we walk with joy in our hearts as well, uh, knowing that you've called us to be satisfied and uh, contented in, in you. And I pray that that very thing happens uh, in, within our hearts today. We pray this in the powerful and mighty name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen and amen. You know, I was reading a lot this week, just kind of surrounding the subject of faith and I read some things from Charles Swindoll that I thought were really helpful. He, he gave a quote, and it's a quote that Mark Twain wrote in one of his, you know, one of his writings, and, and um, I thought it was an interesting quote. He said this, he said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Now, the grammar may not be perfect, but it does resonate that there are many who believe in not true. And so faith is believing in what you know ain't so, according to Uh, Mark Twain in in one of his works. Now, this is exactly how many people in our culture today view faith. It's the belief in something that we already kind of feel true. There seems to be an ongoing philosophical shift, if, if you will, in the way that people think through faith and the way that people think through logic. And so this is something that progresses, it appears, year after year, this shift in the way that we view faith and the way that we view logic. But the interesting thing in the midst of all of that is that the desire to believe that something greater than ourselves does exist is there. It's fascinating. People are realizing that they are coming up against a wall in life if their attempts to find complete joy and satisfaction is found in what they can achieve in this world alone that wall hits them at some point. They say, you know what? I do have the desire to believe in something greater. I just don't know if I believe in that belief that I have to believe in something greater. It's interesting to know that we even have this desire. It's similar to what we talked about last week. We talked about this natural, moral law that we universally share. And the reason we share this is because By way of virtue, we are created in the image of God. And so God, as Paul says it, has written his word on our hearts. 
And so this law is there where we know right from wrong, and that's what separates us from, say, the, the, the animal kingdom, if you will. Uh, we're not simply transactional people. We know when things are wrong. We feel the feelings of regret and remorse and guilt. Where does that come from? Well, you're thinking about animals for just a moment. I, growing up in Florida, I can't help but think about gators. There's a time growing up, me and my buddy, we would always go to the river and we had our compound bows that we hunted with and we lessened the poundage on that, the draw, and we put a reel on it and we would chum up some mullet and we would shoot those mullet in the river. Well, this river was a deep, dark, tannined river and you couldn't see what was around you. Now we knew what was around us. There's a lot of gators around us. And, uh, and, and that's scary. At the time, I don't know why it was less scary. I think the older I've gotten, the more common sense has come to me and I don't think I would do that today but we've heard story after story of dogs that are walking the riverbank and gators coming up to those dogs and grabbing that dog and death rolling that dog I know that sounds tragic I'm sorry this is just kind of the way it works and and you know you never saw at on kind of the end of all those things when gators do that you never saw a gator kind of coming back to the surface and showing physical signs of remorse and regret for taking the beloved dog from their family. That kind of thing doesn't happen. Why? Because we are fundamentally different than, say, a gator. Why? Well, we are image bearers. We are created in the image of God, and so we have this desire to know something greater than us. That is where, is exactly where it comes from. But we do know that even going back to the 13th century, you have guys like Thomas Aquinas who attempted to bridge a gap, if you will, from the physical and the spiritual, which people believed in physics, and they generally at that time believed that there was a creator of some kind, a deity of some kind that put those two together. What Thomas Aquinas did is he listed five proofs for the existence of God and he attempted to bridge the gap of the physical and the spiritual by saying that bridge that you want to believe in is not found in some arbitrary lower lowercase g God. It's found in the way, the truth, and the life. So he pointed to God in that. But if you continue on with philosophical belief and philosophical thought, it appears since that time of Thomas Aquinas, and as the time ticks on even ahead of us, we see philosophical systems trying to explain that the seen and the unseen cannot live in the same intellectual home. So if you're trying to figure out or reconcile the physical versus the spiritual, thought today would demand that the two cannot live in the same intellectual home. If you fast forward from Thomas Aquinas' day to the, say the 20th century, there's this philosophical belief called existentialism that was birthed and in this belief in this train of thought it essentially says if you're looking for meaning and if you're looking for purpose in your life you have to you have to conjure that up yourself it is not handed down from God nor is it handed down from anyone else if you want to have meaning and you want to have purpose it's going to come from what you and so in essence what they're saying is that gap between the physical and the spiritual cannot be bridged. It is irrational for you to believe that God did that. It is irrational or, or, or just unintelligent for you to believe that God is, is the one who caused those 
things. And so what they would say is it takes blind faith for you and I to believe that God is the one who created it all. So a common viewpoint, perhaps in our day and age today, as this belief system progresses, is you believe in something to which there is no proof. That's probably better said than Mark Twain, but both resonate well. You believe in something that ain't so, is what Mark Twain would say. And uh, I, I would say that the way we think about uh, interpreting the philosophical beliefs that are cascaded to us today, it's you're believing in something to which there's no proof. It's not rational, and again, it's unintelligent. Now, I want to be sure to, to, to share this with you from the seat that I sit in. I wish I was saying from the pulpit that I'm standing in, but I'm not. From the seat that I'm sitting in, I, I want to say to you that faith in God is anything but irrational. Further, it does not cause us to shut off our brains or to ignore logic. No, not at all. What we have seen God do in the fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament, seeing Jesus becoming this Redeemer, and we can trust in that. We, we can also trust in the countless lives that have been changed by the power of God we can also look around and see the restorative work that God has done have you seen God heal marriages have you seen God help to break addictions in people's life I mean God has done a restorative work in many of your lives even in this room and we look around and we say no this God there is something to him and I don't feel irrational or unintelligent for believing in him Paul does earlier in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, as he says, all of creation points towards a God who is a creator. He says, all you have to do is look around. And I'm reading this book by, by J.D. Greer, and I, I love something that he says early on in the book. He says that, you know, you and I, we don't look at the Sistine Chapel or the Taj Mahal or the works of Shakespeare. But we don't look at those things and say, ah, that's a, that's a lucky outcome. We don't look at those things and say, uh, that outcome, outcome has taken place from this you know, fortuitous accident, and it's amazing. We never do that. We instinctively, intuitively, innately look at the Sistine Chapel, the Taj Mahal, the works of Shakespeare, and we say, man, there's an artist here. Someone did this. They didn't throw buckets of paint on the wall, and it just happened. No, something took place quite intentionally to create these beautiful things. And so it's not an accident. If you look around at creation, just take a walk outside or look in the mirrors at your, at your own body and how you function. It's not an accident that you operate, that I operate, that the world looks the way that it looks. No, God has placed it all together, hear me, by design. And it seems incredibly logical to me to think that there is a creator. Whenever I look at all it takes to uphold the universe, and if there were just very subtle things out of shift, we would all be dead. All that it takes for our bodies to sustain life, and if there were little subtle shifts, we would be dead. I find it incredibly logical to say someone placed those things together. There's an end to things like the Big Bang, and they don't know what caused the Big Bang to happen. But we look and we say, no, God is the creator. We can trust that he holds all of these things together. I would say that it takes a lot of blind faith to believe that this all happened by luck or happenstance. 
Or it's just incredible odds that we were able to operate in the way that we do and that our universe operates in the manner that it does. No, man, there is a creator, and Paul wants, Paul wants the Roman believers to know this. And, and I would just say we can trust in God, and we ought to trust in God, and this type of trust in him, when you consider the things that are seen and the things that are unseen, this type of trust is not uncommon to us. For example, how many of you fly in airplanes? If you fly in an airplane, you put a lot of trust in that metal tube. There's a lot of trust in the pilot. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that you're taking off and landing somewhere else. It's unbelievable, but why do we trust it? Because over time, we have seen a proven track record. And that proven track record causes us to say, okay, there's something to this, and it's okay. It's like if you are going under anesthesia for a surgeon to cut on you. There's a lot of trust in that, man. Putting me to sleep, and I'm trusting a surgeon to open up my body and to correct what is wrong in my body. There's a lot of trust there, but proven track records show, hey, you can trust here. I submit to you that faith is not a leap. Faith is not blind. Faith is not irrational. Faith is not unintelligent. And Paul illustrates this by looking at Abraham's trust in God, at Abraham's faith in God. And so as we look at what Paul says here in Romans 4, I would ask that you assess, and I'm going to do the same in my life, your faith as we look at the marks of faith in Abraham's life. It's not blind. And we trust in him. Why? Proven track record, man. We can trust in our God. So you ready to get into the text? A long introduction, but I think it was necessary. Here we go. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 18. We're just going to go piece by piece as we work our way through it. Let's look at verse 18 first. If you're there, we say amen. amen. The word of God says this, in hope, he, he being Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he has been told. He had been told, so shall your offspring be. Remember the promise way back in Genesis that God gave Abraham. Look at the stars in the sky. So shall your offspring, so as numerous shall your offspring be. Well, here he is, an old man, and he has none. So against all hope, when the world is looking at him, saying, hey, bro, why are you hoping? Ain't nothing happening. He says, nah, man, against all hope, I know God. And he's a trustworthy God. And so he his hope in God, even in a seemingly hopeless situation, whereas the world would say in Ephesians 2, don't do that. Don't place your hope in God. But Ephesians 2 says that those that operate that way are alienated from God. They have, not, they have not properly seen that he is a promise-keeping God. Abraham believed God even when it felt impossible. Hope is a general characteristic of mankind. It belongs to the who we are, but is there any real basis for it? I submit to you today, yes. And the basis for our hope in God comes from his known character. And it comes from his attributes. He is a, a God who possesses steadfast love. He's a God whose mercies are never-ending. They are new every morning. He is a God who is faithful. And as we read in Lamentations 36, the Lord is my portion. I will hope in him. Hope is not conjured from nothingness. No hope in the promises of God that are ultimately fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so our response to this type of hope is not a stagnant 
apathetic, stale response. No, it's an active response. And we want to we act in obedience. A big part of hope. Spurgeon said, all true believers like Abraham obey. Obedience is faith. You are to walk in the steps of, of the faith of Father Abraham. His faith did not sit still. It took steps. And you must take these steps also by obeying God because you believe him. That faith which has no works with it is a dead faith and will justify no one. So Abraham had hope in a seemingly hopeless situation. But in verse 19, we also see that Abraham's faith was strong. Look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered, I love this, his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. He looked in the mirror. He's like, ah, oh, man, good as dead. Yet God says, I'm going to have, I'm gonna have a, a child and be the father of many nations. And then he considered the barrenness of Sarah. Sarah had not been able to have children. And here she is now old in age. And, and she's laughing because of this promise of, of God. I'm like, man, no way. But, but Abraham, he, he didn't allow his faith to be shook in that moment. Now, the Bible says here in verse 19 that his faith was not weakened. It only grew stronger. Our faith should not be like the example of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, where it fell on ground to where it immediately sprung up, but it fizzled out. We don't want a faith that fizzles. No, we want our faith to be like Abraham's, a faith that will only grow stronger. I don't want to live in a castle of doubt. I want to believe that God can move and operate and thrive in my life. I know that things don't always work out the way that I think they should go, but I also know that I can trust in him, and I don't want my faith to shriek at all. I want it to grow like Abraham's faith. Why? Because he's a big God, and he's worth trusting, and we can have faith in him, and we can place our hope in him. Verse 20 says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. He didn't mistrust God. He didn't distrust the Lord. No, he didn't waver concerning God's promise, even though he was good as dead. And his wife was barren. What did he do? He grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, which is an important point for us. The latter part of verse 20, we should give glory to God. Abraham gave glory to God. Our lives should not be redirected to where glory is stripped from the Lord and given to things like money or our appearance or our status, our popularity or partying or Whatever feels good, do it. Our, our glory should never run towards those arenas. Our glory should be pointed towards the glory of God, man. That's where we should elevate, and we should say all glory to his name, all power to his name. I want to point to him. And Abraham was in a hopeless situation, seemingly. He was good as dead. His wife was barren, but God gave him a promise, man, and he chose to glorify God. Do you walk around in a posture that says, I believe in the power of God, even though I know it may make no sense to you, I believe in the power of God, and I'm going to glorify him with my life. Do you walk around that way? I don't always do that. But I remember a time I preached years ago, and there was a man who was in the audience who was brilliant, brilliant. And he was examining the claims of Christ, and he came up to me with a tear in his eye after I preached. He said, I don't know if I believe what you preach, Pastor. And as he has a tear rolling down his face, he says, but I do believe you believe it. That's the best compliment I ever received. I don't always do a good job of that, but I want that to scream true in my life. Now I want to give glory to God in my life in all things. Why? What is the chief end of man? 
The chief end of man is to give glory to God and to enjoy him forever. Verse 21, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham believed God would fulfill his promises. Even though it was tough to believe, even though it wasn't easy, even though all seemed lost, here's what Abraham knew and here's what we need to know. God is a promise keeper. He's a promise-keeping God. And I love verse 22 and then 23 and following. 22 says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Why was it? Because he had faith even when all hope seemed lost. You know, we begin our Christian walk with faith and we continue our Christian walk with faith. Where does your faith today need to be bolstered? Look at verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him righteousness. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him, love this, check it out, were not written for his sake alone. So Paul is saying, not only is it for you, Roman believers, but for us, reading this text today, this is for us. We must have faith in God, by grace through faith in Christ alone. Verse 24, but for ours also. Us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, he's kind of preaching the gospel here, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He's preaching the Easter sermon. The death, burial, and resurrection happened so that we could be justified. And if we place our faith in him, it counts for us as well. Not just for Abraham, but how is your life lining up with Abraham's life? We live in the already and not yet. And so we experience the goodness of God in our todays, but we know we'll be fully justified fully redeemed one day when we meet Jesus in our forever home. And Paul is elevating this view, saying don't place your faith elsewhere. Don't buy into the philosophical beliefs that are cast down, saying you, you're unintelligent or unwise or irrational if you believe in the spiritual. No, you lean into God being a creator because he is a big God. And it's not a blind leap of faith. It's not irrational. It's not unintelligent. No, it is the right thing to say, God, I trust in you. And I want to give glory to you. And I want to live my life in a manner that pleases you. Because, God, I know how important it is for me to surrender all and to realize that you can do so much with a life that is surrendered to you. We know that, do we not? That God, God can do so much. God can do so much through a life that is completely submitted to him. That completely trusts in him. And I want your trust, and I want your submission, I want my trust, and I want my submission to be in the bigness of God. I think about Robert Wilson, who was most commonly remembered for his outstanding achievements in linguistics at Princeton Theological Seminary. And the reason why he was elevated as such is because he learned over 45 ancient languages to help himself understand the scriptures better. But his students... They do not remember him for all of those incredible academic achievements. They remembered him for the way that he critiqued them as they preached in class. You would think he was one that paid attention to how they parsed verbs. You would think that he was dissecting the ancient theology. You would think that this professor was analyzing their scholarship or even paying attention, but he was not at all. You see, what Robert Wilson did is when he looked at those that were preaching in his class, he, he listened for something far deeper than all of those things that I mentioned. He listened for those who elevated the bigness of God. And he said, I, I could always tell those that elevated the bigness of God, I could tell their ministry was going to be successful. I got to tell you today, the same is true in our lives. 
And success does not mean that we're going to gain all these worldly things. But success in our lives means that we're going to walk in obedience to God because we believe in the bigness of God. We believe in the promises of God. We believe in the sovereign hand of God. And we want to operate in such a way that even when everything seems like hope is lost, everything seems like it's not going to work out the way that it, it should, and it may not be according to my plan, even in the midst of that, man, my faith is rooted deeply in God. And it's not empty or blind. It's because I've read the book and I've seen God move in people's lives. And the track record that he has is strong and true. And I can trust in him. I'm not going to trust in fleeting worldly ideologies. I'm going to trust in the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus. So today, there may be some of you here that are believers in Jesus. But man, you've just been struggling. You are on the struggle bus. And you got some things in your life that you just wish were different. And you don't really know what to do. I got to tell you, trust in the Lord. Let your full weight rest upon him. Trust that he will work it all out for your good and for his glory. Trust in him. For those that are here that are not believers and you're simply examining the claims of Christ, I would submit to you, he's worth giving your life to. And when you tease out all the other things in this world that you're hoping will bring you joy and satisfaction and contentment and peace, and you find yourself laying your head down at night empty, I'll tell you that it's in Christ alone that we're able to lay our head down at night full of peace and hope. Because our goal is to glorify him and enjoy him forever and what he gives us nothing in this world can give and I would encourage you to surrender your life to Jesus for brother and sister he is worth it and I'm going to pray for us and as I pray I would just ask you to examine your own heart and I would ask you to ask the Lord to do the same for you and if there's some areas in your life where you say man I'm just not trusting as I ought I pray that today is that day that we roll all of our burdens off of ourselves and onto Christ. For he says in Matthew 11 that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and for us to come to him. I pray that we'll do that very thing today, that we'll place our full weight on him, and we'll trust him because he's worth it. And it's not irrational to do so. It's right and good, proper and appropriate for us to trust in our sovereign Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your love, your kindness, your mercy. God, thank you for the power in your word. God, I pray that you have stirred our affections for you today. God, I pray that our trust will be strong, that our faith will not weaken, that we will only grow. Lord, as the example of Abraham that we've seen in our text, his faith grew stronger even when he looked in the mirror and appeared hopeless. His trust and faith only grew stronger because he knew that his hope was sure in you. God, may our hope as well be sure in you. We pray this in the powerful and mighty name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen.